Good morning, everyone. I feel I should be saying nice to see you again after my summer break, but of course it's going to be another little while before I get to meet a lot of you again face to face. We will, however, be commencing our gathered church services again from Sunday the 6th of September, and you'll be receiving in the next few days some information with our Chronicle about what to expect in coming back to church. But in addition to that information, I would also now add that the wearing of face masks to church for those who are able to do that is greatly encouraged and advisable. While I was away, we all witnessed the terrible scenes of disaster in Lebanon, and the moderator of PCI has since launched an appeal to provide help in both prayer and practical support for the people of Beirut, working together with our partners, Christian Aid and Tear Fund. If you would like to donate to that, details can be found on the PCI website, or you can through do that through our congregation by marking your donation, Moderator's Appeal for Lebanon. Sadly, a number of our long-standing church partners based in Beirut have been very badly affected by the disaster. Coming up in September is a new Alpha course. This will be online via Zoom and will be hosted by the South Belfast Presbytery. Please do contact me if you'd like to be involved with that or simply to know more details. Let us now come to worship God. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Let us pray. And in our opening prayer today, we reflect upon the words of the well-known hymn, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. Living God, we name you as immortal, the Alpha and Omega of our creation, the eternal living presence. And now in our prayers, the immortal touches the human. Eternity dips into time. And we are transported into your nearer presence, aware of your greatness. In this very place, immortal, invisible, God only wise, we worship and adore you. And we presume now when we choose at a time that is right for us that you will listen, be available to us and hear our prayers. What right have we to call on you when it suits us. And yet you bid us to come. You are ready to listen. You will us to enter your courts. You smile upon us in welcome when you see us arrive. Unresting, unhasting, you are God. And because Of all of this, we come tentatively into your presence, in awe of your justice and holiness, wondering whether we are worthy, questioning whether we deserve to be here. Yet you bid us to come. You call us to confess. You wait till we bow down. And you expect our penitence. 
And so, Lord, we confess to you our sins. But then you say, stand up, my friend. Come closer. You are forgiven. You need fear no more. Thy justice like mountains high soaring above, thy clouds which are fountains of goodness and love. Unchanging God, we name you now as our life giver, who with grace and mercy shows you believe in us, you need us, you want us to serve. So take us now, free us from all that holds us back, call us by name, welcome us home so that we can say now in your presence we blossom and flourish as leaves on the tree and wither and perish but not changes thee these prayers we bring you great father of glory pure father of light in and through the name of jesus christ our savior amen Our Bible reading today is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, and we're reading verses 13 to 20. Let us hear the word of God. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. And may God bless to us this reading of his word. A couple of weeks ago, on one of the few glorious sunny days that we've had in the month of August, I was walking with my family along the cliff top at the Giant's Causeway, a truly impressive location. Still this year, drawing lots of staycationers like ourselves, probably far too many of us. But it was one of those days and one of those locations where family memories are made. I want to take you in your mind's eye today to another cliff face, quite a scenic location in the foothills of Mount Hermon in northern Palestine, a little place today known as Baneas, but that in Jesus' time was better known as Caesarea Philippi. And what made this location impressive was not just the backdrop of the, the great limestone cliffs, or the fact that 
72 springs bubbled up from the ground at the base of the cliffs to form the source of the River Jordan. But at the time of Jesus, the cliffs were the backdrop for a spectacular array of gleaming white marble temples, some of them built into the cliff itself. When I first read today's passage from Matthew's Gospel, I hadn't much idea in my mind where Caesarea Philippi was, so I turned to the map at the back of my Bible and noticed it was actually way up north and west of the province of Galilee. And I found myself asking, what was Jesus thinking, bringing his disciples way up there? It was, in fact, one of the most northerly out of all the locations recorded in the Gospels as having been visited by Jesus with his disciples, right up near the region of Syria. Now, perhaps Jesus' purpose was to take his disciples on a kind of retreat, uh, like we know he sometimes did, spending some time with them away from the crowds. There weren't many Jews up in that region. But this passage records quite a significant exchange that happened in this place between Jesus and his disciples. And when you learn a little bit more about this location, it does seem that Jesus was using their surroundings to get across his message in a way that was visual and memorable for his disciples. This was a region with many different religious associations. For the Jews, it was the source of the River Jordan. And towering above it in the background was the magnificent Mount Hermon, marking the northernmost point of the Promised Land, a place perhaps that reminded them of where they had come from, from where they were brought all those years ago by God through Moses. But in Old Testament times, the region had also dotted uh, within it ceremonial sites for the worship of the pagan god Baal. Later, the Greeks believed it to be the home of the Greek god Pan, the god of nature and fertility, who had the appearance of half man, half goat. And the cliff face at the site of Caesarea Philippi to this day is a large cave opening, which used to descend very abruptly into the blackness to a great depth and was filled with water at the bottom of it of unknown depth. And this was widely referred to and believed to be the gates of the underworld or the gates of Hades. The Romans continued to pay homage to Pan by building a temple over the cave's entrance, which would have stood there in Jesus' day. There were also lots of reminders in Jesus' day of Roman imperial power and religion. Statues of Roman gods set into the, the rock face. Herod the Great built a temple in honour of Augustus Caesar and his son Philip the Tetrarch established the city of Caesarea Philippi as the region's capital. And on the hilltop stood a great Roman fortress. So my guess is that for Jesus' disciples, all of this would have made this place, Caesarea Philippi, quite a dark, demonic, oppressive place. Not the kind of place a Jew would immediately think of for a spiritual retreat. But it's against this backdrop, the roots of the, the Jewish story, combined with the signs of pagan power and influence, both political and religious, that Jesus asks his disciples the question, Who do people say that I am? 
And the disciples were somewhat put on the spot and they stumbled. You can see that they stumbled a bit for answers, reporting the word that they'd heard on the streets. Well, some say John the Baptist, maybe someone who's popular, charismatic, someone who people clamoured to see and to follow. Others say, you're Elijah, they reported. Somebody with a special connection to God, somebody with power to do miracles. Elijah was believed to be a forerunner of the Messiah. Still others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets, they told him. And people, it seemed, were just desperately trying to make sense of who Jesus was, trying to cover all the options. And perhaps the disciples themselves, who'd been following Jesus all over the countryside, were still struggling to quickly put into words what they were thinking. Who is Jesus? Jesus knew he hadn't yet heard the real answer to his question, so he rephrases the question for his disciples. And what about you? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Because at the end of the day, what's really important for Jesus is not just to hear us repeat what others are saying about him. But who is he to you personally? Who do you believe Jesus is? Jesus, realising that his time was short, needed to know, had his disciples got it? Did any of them recognise him for who he really was? Were there any among them who, when he was gone from walking the earth, would carry on his work and labour for the kingdom? And what was at stake was the very survival of the Christian faith. In this passage, Jesus talks about the church, which he links with the kingdom. Now, it's not the church in the kind of sense that we perhaps mostly think of church in terms of our congregation or in terms of an institution or denomination, but church in the sense of this new community of those who believe in Jesus and confess him. As Lord. If there were none who grasped the truth about Jesus or even glimpsed it, then all his work would have been in vain. But if there were even a few who realised the truth, then his work was safe. The kingdom was safe. The future of the Church of Christ would be secure. So Jesus is determined to put his disciples to the test by asking them who they believed him to be. And Peter gets it right. Off his lips and out of his heart come the words, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Wow. Where did that come from? Well, it's an affirmation of faith from Peter's heart. Peter, who had observed Jesus' healings, heard his teachings, twice tasted bread, multiplied to serve thousands. Peter who was grasped by the Lord's own hand when stormy waters threatened to sink him. Through all these things and more, from his very first encounter with Jesus, God had been revealing his truth to Peter until he makes this confession of the truth about Jesus. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Something that Jesus tells Peter wasn't revealed to him by man, but by his Father in heaven. 
And that confession is so important at this point in the story because in Matthew's Gospel, it marks the beginning of the church of Jesus Christ, a turning point in Jesus' ministry. After this, Jesus and, and his disciples would turn around and head down the road south to Jerusalem, his last journey to the cross. But a turning point because someone had finally kneeled down exactly who Jesus is, Messiah, Son, living God. Jesus, in other words, is sent straight from the Lord who had delivered ancient Israel, who called Abraham and Sarah and raised Moses. He himself is part of God's own creating and redeeming presence that will bring about salvation and lasting justice and peace. And all the teachings and all the miracles could now be seen as tokens of that living kingdom that God is establishing on earth. And in this place of holy mountains and rock, Jesus answers Peter, making a word play on his name. You are Peter. Peter's name in Greek was Petros. In Aramaic, it was Kephas, both meaning rock. You are Petros, Jesus said to him, but... On this Petra, I will build my church. On this rock, I will build my church. Petra and the Greek word ecclesia for church are both feminine, whereas Petros is the masculine form. So it seems that the rock Jesus is referring to building his church upon is not so much Peter as the confession of Peter. Peter, who nonetheless at that moment became the first of the living stones with which God would build his new kingdom. And scattered and pitiful group that they are, small in number, the disciples will eventually become the rock-solid core of a new community built on God's foundation that would embody Jesus' life on earth with Christ as the cornerstone, the church. And not even the power of death and Hades would be able to prevail against their life together in Christ as the church grows to include people of all nations. Just like ancient Israel, they would become living reminders to all people of God's amazing faithfulness and improbable power. That message was made all the more dramatic by Jesus' choice of location, surrounded by all of these signs of worldly power and oppression and pagan influence. There at the very gates of hell, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Perhaps you're looking at church today, asking what has become of church? Here we are, small in number, scattered, perhaps some of us pessimistic about the future, not knowing for how long we can meet again. What would church life be like in the future? Well, the truth is the church lives on. Christ's kingdom lives on. The future of that church may not look much like we've known before. The institutions may look different. They may not even look that Presbyterian. But the church, the community of those who believe and confess Jesus as Messiah and living Lord, Son of the living God, will continue to be on the advance 
Just like for Jesus and his disciples who stood looking around them at all their surroundings, these things that we see will pass away. Powers, philosophies, rulers, kingdoms, empires, riches, wealth, wars, pandemics. But the church of Christ will outlast them all. And let's remember that gates are not for offensive purposes. They are defensive, designed to keep out invaders or intruders. So when Jesus says the gates of Hades will not prevail against his church, he's not talking about his church merely holding out in some kind of static defensive stance. No. God is on the offensive. The church is advancing albeit in a way totally foreign to the worldly powers around it. God's way is the way of the cross, the way of mercy and love, the way of good overcoming evil. And it took Peter slightly longer to grasp the truth of that. The church is advancing into enemy territory, not the other way around, which is how the enemy would have us see it. So I hope God is building you in the way he built Peter and his first disciples and the rest of us. Carefully, yes, and with the hope that over time we will so reflect Jesus in our lives, in our words, in our actions, that it will be unmistakable even when we feel scattered and pitiful and defeated. It will be unmistakable from which great rock we were hewn. Messiah, Son, living God, Jesus. Amen. Now let us come before God with our prayers for others and our prayers for our world. Let us pray. Listening God, you call us to come to you with our prayers for others. And we do so in a spirit of gratitude for all the ways your grace and mercy fills our lives. We thank you for creation and for all the blessings of this life. And most of all, for your boundless love in the gospel of Jesus Christ, our redeeming presence. Lord, give us a constant awareness of your mercy. Call us to take time to immerse ourselves in your grace. Make us aware of signs and symbols of your love and action. Loving God, in Jesus Christ, you taught us to pray and to offer petitions to you in his name. Guide us by your Holy Spirit that our prayers for others may serve your will. You made all things in your wisdom and in your love you save us. So we pray for all of creation, that evil powers might be cast down, that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness might be fed, and that all your children might enjoy in equal measure the fruits of your world. We pray for the church, Keep us one in faith and service so that your good news might be proclaimed. 
and so that your love and light might become beacons of hope and purpose in the darkest places. We pray, Lord, for the people of Lebanon and Beirut, for the public and those responsible for governing this country. Help them, Lord, not to give up in the midst of this disaster and despair, but to be infused with fresh hope and know your hand providing for every need. We pray for PCI's partners in Beirut, strategically placed for mission in the Middle East region, churches, theological seminaries and Christian broadcasters. May they be envisioned, strengthened, wise and determined in finding your way forward. Lord, we share the pain and suffering of our brothers and sisters in Christ in this region and indeed of all the people of Lebanon. We pray, Lord, that you would bring to them genuine encouragement and practical support. Lord, we cannot love you fully unless we love our neighbours as ourselves. So we pray for our enemies and our friends. We pray for all of those in need, in body, mind and spirit. We pray for all who suffer from pain, sorrow and grief especially any known to us, whom we name before you now. God of compassion, bless us and those we love, that drawing close to you, we may be drawn closer to each other. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Go out into the world in peace. Love your God with all your heart. Be challenged by the Spirit's promptings. Hear the call of Christ to serve. And be obedient to God's will. And may God bless you and the Spirit restore you. And Christ's presence strengthen you. Now and always. Amen.